You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. David Guzik here. So glad that you could join me for this Thursday edition of the live question and answer. Again, since the uh, coronavirus and everything that has attended it, we're doing this twice a week now on Thursdays and on Monday afternoon, just because since people are cut off from their normal local church fellowship in the same way. Now, I, I am very happy. I would hope that most of you, you are still attending your church. You are still part of your church family because it's online and you can interact and maybe even you're having prayer meetings by uh, different technologies, Zoom or different go to meeting or whatever it would be. I pray that you're still interacting with those things the very best you can. We need to do what we can in this season that right now, let's face it, it seems to be really long. It seems to be lasting forever. But there's still a ways for us to go. And when this is all over, we'll look back and It'll feel briefer once it's in the rearview mirror. But anyway, in the midst of this time when we can't gather together as we normally do, or at least in the normal customs, I'm just trying to be online and available a little bit more. So that's why we're doing the live question and answer twice a week now. That's why I'm putting out a morning devotional every morning. Again, it's just available on the YouTube channel. So I hope you can get it. And of course, all the stuff about subscribing and notifications. I get tired of talking about that, um, but if people want to do it, I suppose that's great for them to do. My common practice here on the live question and answer is to begin with a lead question that I have chosen, something that comes in through email or a comment on the YouTube channel or some kind of other message. And that's really what I want to get to today is somebody asked me the question and said, well, David, can we have communion online? And what about somebody having communion? When I say communion, I mean the Lord's table, the bread and the cup. Can we do that uh, ourselves? Does it have to be within a church? So let me just deal directly with that question. Can we have communion online? And the, the answer most directly and technically that is no, you can't have communion online. How could you? You, you can't drink something online. You can't that you, you can't really do communion online, but I would say you can have communion at home. You you can have communion outside of a church building. Now, this is somewhat controversial, at least among some Christian groups, and I'll get to that in a moment, but let me walk through this with you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now in that passage, Paul assumes that the Lord's Supper, communion, will be among believers at their church gathering. He even makes a distinction between the eating and drinking that believers do at home and the Lord's Supper that they have together as a church family. Let me read you 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 17. Here we go. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. 
For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Now, we don't have time to walk through that whole section there. But let me just say that we find from this passage that God gives churches the responsibility of making sure that the Lord's Supper is properly conducted. That it is not done, as verse 27 says, in an unworthy manner. Now, there are some Christian traditions, some denominations, if you will, that mean that that take that to mean that it's their job to enforce that there is no conducting of the Lord's Supper outside of the church. Again, because I would say that 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 34, does give us the idea that it's the responsibility of churches to make sure that the Lord's Supper is properly conducted. Again, that it's not done in an unworthy matter. But I find it interesting that according to verse 28, it's up to the individual to examine himself. But it's up to the church to see that the whole atmosphere of what's being done honors God. Let me put it to you this way. And this is my perspective. I'm just trying to acknowledge that there's different church traditions that love the Lord that see this differently, but I'm going to give you my perspective. Communion in your home doesn't replace communion at your church except in strange, unusual circumstances. For example, when churches cannot meet at all. We would never say it isn't important whether or not your church has communion. Just have it at home. We wouldn't say that. But there is nothing wrong with the reverent remembering and receiving of Jesus and his work for us on the cross by coming together for communion. Whether that be as families, households, even friends. And again, let me stress, I'm not saying that this replaces having communion together as a church family. That should be done, and it's important. But in addition to, I believe that it's okay to reverently remember and receive what Jesus did for us on the cross by coming together as communion. Remember what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 46. It says this, So continuing daily with one accord in their temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. This isn't universally understood, but many scholars believe that that phrase in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where it says breaking bread from house to house, that refers not only to eating together, but also to having communion together. And what does it say there that they did there in Acts 2.46? They did it house to house. Now, if the apostles wanted to highly regulate the taking of communion, maybe they would have said, no, we can only do it under the supervision of an apostle. 
And we can only do it together when we gather together with one accord at the temple, because that's what it says that they were doing in Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 2, verse 46. Continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. If they were having communion together with their normal meal there, as indicated in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, this gives a wonderful example of having communion in the home, N not necessarily at church, but in addition to that, in the home. Now, what, what is this important for the significance of communion and the Lord's table? I'm going to give you three principles. And listen, I, I know that especially in a brief description that I'm going to give right now, I understand I'm wading in deep waters here. I understand that these are things that different Christian traditions have different ideas about and things that have been debated, even argued about. I mean, I think of uh, Luther and Zwingli at Marburg and the colloquy at Marburg and their great argument over the one thing that seemed to divide them, or at least that there was a difference between them. When Luther and Zwingli argued about this, about the, what the nature of communion, what the nature of the Lord's Supper was. So I'm, I'm not giving some answer that I think silences every answer. I'm just giving you my understanding of the three important aspects of taking communion. Okay, here, here's my understanding. It's three R's. I rarely alliterate things, but this one came pretty easy. Three R's. First of all, it needs to be reverent. That is honoring God and according to his word. Reverent doesn't necessarily mean somber. I think that there can be a joyful aspect. We are happy for what Jesus did at the cross. We happily receive it. It shouldn't be giddy. It should by no means be silly. It should be done as 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 says, it should be done in a worthy manner. I think that just means reverent. So it needs to be done honoring God according to his word, either whether that's done in the church or if you have communion in your home or among friends, reverent. Secondly. It needs to be done to remember, to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. That is shown in the significance of the bread, his broken body, in the significance of the cup, his shed blood. Now, I understand there are many Christian traditions who maybe the hair went up on the back of their neck when I said remember, because they, they would immediately shout out, it's so much more than a remembrance. That's kind of the view advanced by Zwingli in the Reformation, and there's a lot to that. But let me just say this. I would agree that there's more to communion than merely remembering, but it certainly includes remembering. <laughs> remembering is not excluded. Jesus himself used those words, remember me when you do this. So remembering is not excluded. It doesn't encompass everything, but it's certainly a significant part. So reverent, remember, and now the third R, receiving. I think this is an aspect to this that I think is important to understand and that goes beyond remembering. Let's face it, remembering is a mental exercise, which is good, which is important. We need to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross, but that's not all it is. It's also receiving. In other words, when I hold the piece of bread at communion, I'm not commanded to just think about that piece of bread. I'm also commanded to 
eat it, to receive it. When I hold that cup, I'm not commanded just to think about the cup or even think about the blood of Jesus that it represents. I'm commanded to receive it within me. You are receiving into your innermost being these vital pictures of what Jesus did on the cross, his broken body, and his shed blood. You're saying, Lord, I want this in my innermost being. With my innermost being, I want to receive, understand, trust, be nourished by what Jesus did on the cross. I want him in my life. Have you ever thought that eating and drinking are true acts of faith? Everything you eat, you're acting by faith that this is something I can eat, that it's not going to poison me. Maybe you're eating some junk food and you realize it's not so good for you, but at least you think it's not going to poison you and make you sick. Eating and drinking are acts of faith and acts of receiving. <laughs> you don't take that piece of bread in communion and rub it on your hand. Oh, now I'm... No, you receive it into your innermost being. Now, as I said before, some in our broader Christian family, they disagree with this. They refer to communion or the Lord's table as a sacrament. I'm not so hot on that particular term, but that's another matter. And also as something that must be presided over by a duly ordained minister or an otherwise approved person. Now, I understand that perspective. I respect its intention, but I don't agree with it. Look, the Bible says that Christians should take communion, the Lord's Supper. The Bible says that it should be done at the gatherings of Christians. How frequently? I think that's a legitimate area where people can talk about and disagree and at which services and such. But it definitely should be done at the gatherings of Christians, what we would call church services. The Bible also says that the church should make sure that things are done according to proper order when taking communion. Listen, if you are having communion in your home, do not be offended if the pastor or elders of your church say, tell me about what you're doing. T tell me about how you have this. That is entirely fair for them to say, we want to make sure that in our congregation, communion is being properly observed, reverently observed, not in an unworthy manner, as 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven 27 says, not only when communion is taken in our church building, in our church services, but also if it's being taken by our congregation. That, that is a fair thing for pastors or elders to do. But then we're also told that the Bible says that the individual should examine himself as part of communion. But the Bible does not say that communion can only be received at church gatherings. And the Bible does not say that only certain people can lead communion. So I would say this, it can be a holy thing to have communion in your home, among your family. Uh, it, if there's a, a father and a husband there in that home, with the father and the husband as the priest of the home saying, family, come, we're going to read the scriptures. Maybe we'll sing a song of worship, but at the very least, we're going to read the scriptures. We're going to remember and receive what Jesus did for us on the cross, and we're going to do it reverently. Now, what do you use? Look, I'll give you my take on this. 
It's best to use unleavened bread. Now, I wouldn't get hung up on it. If you just use the bread that's in a loaf, that's okay. But if you ask me what's best, I think it's best to use unleavened bread and it's best to use unfermented wine. Some people call that grape juice, but certainly someone can use leavened bread. Someone can use wine or even substitutes in a pinch as long as the principle of reverence is respected. And I think that principle of reverence, you, you know, um, if, if, uh, if, if people are together at some social occasion and drinking beer and eating potato chips, n- nobody should, hey, let's call this communion. Here's the cup and here's the bread. You know, but the, no, that's not respecting the reverence of what should be done. Remember those three keys, reverent, remember, and receive. And reverence is important in this. Again, I'm not trying to say somber or necessarily sad. It can be a joyful reception, but a respectful one. Let me just kind of summarize with saying this. In my view, one of the great gifts of communion is that it is a material, touchable, even tasteable way to connect with something that's normally just a matter of faith. You can't touch forgiveness. You can't taste the cleansing of sin. But God gave us some material things to signify those, to mark for us not only our remembering of them, but our by faith receiving those things, to remind us of those things, to illustrate our reception of them. You can do this. So you can have communion in your home. Get some bread, ideally unleavened, but don't get hung up about that. Get some unfermented grape uh, wine, grape juice, or wine. Gather those in your household. Read to them, I I think, this wonderful passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. This is what I often like to read at communion. I know I'm not alone. This is probably the most common passage read in the Bible when it comes to communion. The Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Then Paul's postscript in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That proclamation should be happening in our churches, of course, but it can also happen in our homes. It can also happen reverently among other gatherings of Christians when we want to reverently remember and receive what Jesus has done for us at the cross. Well, that's it for my little opening question there. Uh, Let me go over to our chat window. Let's take a look at some of the things that you all have written in. Carol says, our pastor calls on our call line every Sunday morning. We take communion in our homes all the same time. Carol, I think that's a wonderful way to do it. 
And I, I'll agree that maybe I uh, ask the question in a little bit of a provocative way. Look, provocative statements of questions maybe draw people's interest. But, you know, I think it's a beautiful and a powerful thing for you to reverently remember and receive what Jesus has done for you. And if you do it coordinated there together with your pastor, all, all the better. So God bless you with that, Carol. Carmel says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, it says, pursue peace with all people. Is that more than forgiving people? Is it a lack of contention? I guess pursue means something you can't achieve it. Carmel, I think that's a great observation that you're making there from Hebrews chapter 12, starting there at verse 14, where the author of Hebrews says, pursue peace with all people. I, I think that is more than forgiving. Let's remember that the book of Hebrews was written primarily to people from a Jewish background. And very strong in the Jewish thinking, both ancient and modern, is the concept of peace, shalom. And peace or shalom in the Hebrew conception is more than just the stopping of hostility. It is also very much the promotion of peace and health and, and flourishing of life. It, it's not just we're not fighting anymore. There's blessing and goodness and peace in our midst. That's real shalom. It's hard to imagine that that was not some of the thinking going into Hebrews chapter 12, verse 20, verse 14. Pursue shalom with all people. And again, pursue also means keep working on it, even if you can't catch it. We should do what we can to love one another, to do what Jesus told us to do, to love our enemies. Look, if you have an enemy, if you have somebody that, that you just don't get along with, they don't like you and maybe you don't like them, pray for them, pursue peace with them. If you can do it no other way, pray for God's goodness and blessing to be upon that person. That's a beautiful and powerful thing to do in Jesus' name. Uh, thank you, Carmel, for that question. Broken People says, Lord bless you, Pastor David. Question, does God continue to manifest himself like he did in the Bible? Example, a burning bush in the Old Testament and Jesus appearing to Paul in the New Testament. Broken people, that's a great question. And, you know, I'm just kind of searching my mind for the best way to answer that question. And, um... I certainly can't say that it's impossible. And, and since I believe that most of what we read in the book of Revelation concerns things that are yet to happen, not every Christian believes that. There are more than a few Christians that believe that everything in Revelation has already occurred. I disagree with that fairly strongly for a lot of reasons, but I won't get into that right now. In any regard, there are certainly clear ways that God manifests himself on the earth by what's described in the book of Revelation. And so I, I believe that it is possible, but number one, we should not seek such things. I, I've said it once, we can say it a hundred times again. 
if you want God to speak to you and make himself uh, visible or plain to you, read the Bible. This is God's authoritative revelation. And, and it may be, I am one of those who believes that it's possible for God to speak to people today, but nothing matching the authority or the confidence that we have in God's written, revealed word. Absolutely not. There's no revelation today that can come on par with what the scriptures say. And I think we need to be fairly suspicious of any claimed manifestation of God. And I'll tell you the passage of scripture that comes to my mind with that. Do you remember in Galatians where Paul said, that even if an angel that seemed to be from heaven were to proclaim to you something else, you should not believe or receive the gospel that that angel would preach. No, if it's not according to this, it's not according to God, even if it would be accompanied by some spectacular manifestation. Personally, I believe the thing for themselves and pretty much just shut up about it. There's no need to try to build some kind of reputation for yourself through such a thing. So I won't exclude it from happening. I would say if it were to happen, it would be very rare, as it was rare in Bible times, number one. Number two, we should be suspicious of such things. And I don't think people should be criticized for having a suspicion of such things. But thirdly, everything, everything, everything needs to be constantly judged by what is given to us in God's word, the Bible. Good question there uh, from broken people. Caroline or Caroline, she's from uh, Holland. I don't know if it's Caroline or Caroline. Says, hi from Holland. If some can go to church, they are blessed. I cannot because I have an invalid child and take communion at home alone. Caroline, God bless you. You see, you are in one of those unique circumstances. You're not able to uh, attend church because you're attending to the needs of your child. Yes, reverently remember and receive at home what Jesus did for you as expressed through the bread and the cup. Uh, the next question from Ann says, Hey, David, we've heard Christians pray for other people and say, I release the spirit of joy, self-control, etc. What does that mean? Is it biblical? They quote Matthew chapter 10, verse 13. Well, let me turn to Matthew chapter 10, verse 13, just so we know what we're talking about here. Matthew 10, verse 13 says, if the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Well, let me just say, on, I don't think that this is a solid biblical basis for praying such a thing. Um, and so to pray, I release the spirit of joy. I release the spirit of self-control. Okay. This could be a good prayer that's wrongly worded. In other words, if what the person praying actually means, um, Lord, I pray that you give my brother or sister joy. Lord, I pray that you would build self-control in my brother or sister. If that's essentially what the prayer is, God sees the heart 
And if the language of prayer is just because that's what they've heard somebody else do, or they've been told this is what they should do, or this or that, okay, I, I think God sees and understands. I, I would say that that's something maybe worthy of very gentle correction and instruction on. Now, if a person thinks, hey, here I am, Mr. Spiritual Superstar, and I have the power to bestow a spirit of joy upon somebody, well, that's just wrong-headed thinking, isn't it? Isn't that thinking more highly of oneself? I am fairly, I don't know, merciful, tolerant, whatever word you want to use. I, I don't make a big deal out of people who use cliches in prayer because they've heard other people use them or it's just the environment they've been around, but, but their heart is in the right place and they're thinking if it's not correct, it's nearly correct. But, but people who have an arrogance in their prayer, I, I think we should pray in humility before God. So um, again, it would just have to do more with it. But I'll tell you, the specific scripture that you referred to, I don't think that that gives a basis for that kind of prayer at all. So that's how I see it there. On thank you for that question. Uh, Livia asked the question, David, are there prophets today? Um, you know, that's a complicated question. Let me kind of give you a little bit of a background. I do believe that the gifts of the Spirit did not die out with the apostles, except perhaps for one unmentioned gift that I'll get to in just a moment. I believe that the gifts of the Spirit continue for today. I believe that for biblical reasons, and I believe that for historical reasons. Maybe going into some depth on that is a topic for another time. But uh, though I believe that the gifts of the Spirit continue, I believe that there is one unmentioned spiritual gift that God gave to the apostles and prophets who gave us the Holy Scripture that is not given today. Here's, here's that spiritual gift. The gift of hearing God perfectly. Nobody has that gift today. And I know that that gift is nowhere mentioned in the New Testament. Somebody could debate whether or not it is a gift, but I'll tell you this. When God moved upon the apostles and the prophets to give us the New Testament and the Old Testament, but I'm just talking about the New Testament here. God moved upon them so that they would hear him and respond imperfectly. I'm not trying to imply that there was a dictation theory of um, inspiration, that they were just like God was speaking to them the words and they were writing. I'm just saying, that the person who were the people who were inspired, who, who brought forth the God breathed scriptures, were perfectly inspired. They heard and responded to God perfectly in bringing the scriptures. I'll tell you this nobody has that gift today. Nobody. Therefore, and might I say, I don't think everybody had that gift in the first century, too, but that's another matter. Therefore, this is what I want you to understand is it means that anybody who purports to give a word of prophecy should be willing to have that prophecy judged, tested, as the New Testament says that prophecy should be judged, should be tested. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, if someone's to prophesy, let one prophesy and let the others judge. And no 
person who speaks forth a supposed prophecy should dare be offended that their prophecies are evaluated or judged. That's what the New Testament says to do. And if those prophecies are not to be determined from the Lord, either by comparing it to the scriptures or to the witness of the Holy Spirit, they are not to be regarded at all. Just you don't regard it at all. I'm not saying stone the person as a false prophet, but what they said was not true. Now, this brings us to the idea is, are there prophets today? I believe that the gift of prophecy exists today, but I am extremely hesitant. As a matter of fact, I just don't do it. I don't call anybody a prophet. Do you know why? Because once somebody takes the title of prophet, it changes how they see themselves and it changes how everybody else sees them. They often become something like fortune tellers for God. And I don't think they are actually fortune tellers for God, but that's how people regard them. Look, there just needs to be a clear understanding of this. God may very well use people with the gift of prophecy today, but the title of prophet, I don't think is wise to give anybody to either take or receive. And I know somebody said, well, look at what the New Testament says. Well, look at our current situation. And you look at the people who take the title prophet. And you look if those people are a wonderful and glorious representation of Christianity. That's all I ask. If I were to go through and select 10 or 20 people who take the title prophet, if you were to look at what they say and what they do, would we really guard them as great and glorious representatives of the Christian faith? Probably not. If you were to take 10, honestly, I'd be surprised if there were more than two or three that were wonderful representatives of the, the church of Jesus Christ. So this is just what I'm saying. Let's be done. Let's not worry about the title apostle or prophet. Apostle is a whole nother thing. I don't want to get into that right now. If someone says, I think God has given me a word, let me share it. Then share it. Let the others judge. Judge not only if the word is from God, but how it should apply. And then to move on from there. But I do believe that God works in and through the gift of prophecy today. All right, Levy, I hope that answers the question for you. Susan says, uh, or Susanna, I'm sorry. Some churches teach you can't participate if you're living a life of sin. What does the Bible say, uh, Jose and Susie? Okay, great. Thank you, Jose and Susie. Let me just tell you, um, that gets back to what's said in verse 28 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let a man examine himself. And then later on, Paul spoke about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that because some of them were so disgracing the Lord in the manner they took communion and probably connected with the fact that there was rampant sin in the Corinthian church that was not being dealt with. Paul said God was dealing it with it very seriously with discipline among those Corinthian believers. So Susanna, I would just say that um, it is appropriate for the individual to examine their life and make a clean thing of, of, of their life before receiving communion. In other words, here I am with the bread and the cup ready to receive it before the Lord. This is what purchases my forgiveness. The broken body of Jesus, the bread, the poured out blood of Jesus, the cup. 
how appropriate is it for me just to say, yes, Lord, this sin that I've been holding on to, I let go of it right now and I ask that you forgive it and that you let this come under the blood of Jesus. No, we, we should um, get things right with God if we're going to come and take communion. Now, it's not a matter of being worthy enough to receive it. If you want to make it that, none of us are worthy enough. But, but to take communion while knowingly holding on to significant sin, and you say, well, what's significant? Let's just let the Holy Spirit speak to us about that. That's a big deal. And it's a time to get things right with God. Again, just go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20. So let a man examine himself. That's what we should do. Okay, uh, Joanne says, a friend has noted taking his prayers to God when he takes communion. Um, let me come back. I never thought of this time to ask things of the Lord, but to give full thought to the Lord. What's your take on this? Well, Joanne, I would say in general, I would agree with you. Let's make the focus on who Jesus is, what he did for us, and receiving that. And then afterwards, let's ask God for things. That's that's a, God is already giving to us in communion. He's giving to us the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's receive it in faith and then bring our needs to him. That, that's more the pattern I would look for. Uh, Doreen says, um, Dear Pastor Guzik, this is Karina from Mexico. Hey, thank you, Doreen, uh, en español. God bless your ministry. Would you please elaborate about what the ghosts are from a biblical perspective? Okay, I, I'm going to imagine here that maybe there's some Google Translate going on here and that the word was spirits, maybe ghosts. I, I'm not really sure. Could you please elaborate on what the spirits or ghosts are from a biblical perspective? Okay, well, let me just say this simply as I can. The Bible tells us that there are beings in the world that are not um, only material, but they are spiritual as well. And then there are, okay, for example, that's us as human beings. We ourselves, we are material beings, obviously, but we are also spiritual beings. We have eternal spirits or souls. Sometimes those words are used interchangeably in the Bible. Sometimes there's a distinction made. Let, let's just use them interchangeably right now. Uh, the Bible speaks about us as being people that have eternal spirits or souls. So there is a spiritual aspect to our being, and there is a material aspect to our being. Now, there are other beings in the universe that are primarily spiritual and the, they don't normally have a material aspect to their being. We would say that these are angelic spirits. We would say that in this sense, this is God because the Bible says that God is spirit. Now, we're leaving out the intricacies of talking about when the second person of the Trinity added humanity to his deity and took on material form. But let's just say is that God is spirit. Uh Angelic beings are spirit. And so there are spiritual beings that inhabit the universe. We don't know all the nature. We just know what the Bible tells us. And mainly as an idea, these angelic beings. Now, angelic beings can be divided into two categories. 
they can be divided into uh, faithful angelic beings. That's what we normally call angels and fallen angelic beings. That's what we often call demons or unclean spirits. Now, that encompasses, as far as we know, the spiritual world, this, this universe of spiritual beings. Now, I want you to understand something. An angelic fallen spiritual being, a demon or an unclean spirit, could show itself in a very impressive, persuasive way. That's why we are to judge spiritual things. That's why Paul gave the warning in Galatians that even if something were to be manifested by some mighty spirit, do not take it as face value. Spiritual experiences can be very impressive, very real, but not from God. They can be deceptive. This is why Christians need to use discernment why Why any impressive spiritual, they should just not immediately lock on it. They need to test the spirits. Now, let me give one other aspect to this that I, I hope that maybe it's helpful for you here, um, Karina from Mexico. Karina, um, sometimes Christians use in their own vocabulary the spirit of this, the spirit of that. As we were talking before, earlier in our broadcast, the spirit of joy, the spirit of peace, whatever it would be. That is just kind of Christianese, Christian vocabulary, really something that means the attitude of. That's because there's a few places in the Bible where that kind of uh, phrasing is used. Normally, when that phrasing is used, somebody doesn't mean an angelic spirit of joy or God forbid, a demonic spirit of joy. That's not what they're talking about. Sometimes that word spirit is used just in the sense of um, an attitude. And, and so we need to make that distinction. So Karina, I hope that's been helpful for you. If not, please ask a follow-up question and we'll get to it either today or another time. Um, I've got a lot more questions. I think I may wrap it up fairly soon here. Um, Caroline says, I do read aloud Mark 14, 22 or Luke 22, 16 and 17 and pray. Then I take bread and wine on Friday evening, Shabbat. Well, Caroline, again, I think if that's sort of your custom and you're doing it reverently, remembering and receiving, then Caroline, I, I, I would trust that God is pleased with that. God bless you for your ministry to your uh, child that has some special needs, apparently. Rashida asks or says, this is an on-time message. Might ask me to reach out and see who wanted communion. And one person asked about using Zoom. This is a perfect answer to that question. God bless you, Rashida. Um, Jesse asks, what's your favorite book you like to recommend by Charles Spurgeon? I'm looking to pick up some of his readings. Okay, let me give you a great beginning place with Charles Spurgeon. I don't think I have this particular book behind me. Um, a great place to begin it was Spurgeon's devotional called The Treasure, the Treasury of David. I'm, that's on my mind because I'm teaching through Psalms. Spurgeon's best devotional called Morning and Evening. He has a brief devotional, oh, four or five hundred words, uh, one for every morning, one for every evening. I think that's a great introduction to Spurgeon. Now, 
I suppose you can get some versions out there that are edited and kind of brought into more modern phrasing. But I would suggest using something original from Spurgeon without trying to modernize the speech. And the reason I say that is simply because I think it's wonderful to become accustomed and learn how to appreciate that speaking that phrasing of Victorian English. If it just doesn't work for you at all, okay, get an updated version. But Jesse, a great place to start with Spurgeon is his morning and evening devotional. Uh, Rehoboth says, Pastor David, what is your opinion on Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, in reference to this virus? Rehoboth, I think that's a great question. All I'm going to do is refer you to the question and answer video I did a few weeks ago uh, about um, is the coronavirus a sign of the end times? I think I deal with your exact question pretty well in that video. Look for it in our YouTube library. Again, is the coronavirus a sign of the end times? And um, I guess that's about it. God bless you. Um, we'll get to other questions later. Uh, communion is the only ritual that Christ left us until he returns. Darren, I'm going to suggest, Darren, there's another ritual that Jesus has given us, and that's baptism. Uh, but yes, that is uh, another one. And Darren also asked, what are my thoughts on Bethel Church in Reading? I'm not going to get into that now. That's a more extensive uh, answer to a question. Uh, maybe we'll deal with that on another time. But for now, uh, we're going to break this off. I will be back with you on Monday. Again, we're doubling up on our question and answer videos during this time. I just pray that God continues to bless you, keeps you, your family, your loved ones safe. Please do what our public health officials are asking us to do. Keep that social distancing. Keep yourself, and not don't do it out of fear. Do not do it out of fear. Do it out of love for your neighbor. Because even if you had the attitude, I don't care if I get the coronavirus, I don't care if I die, to live as Christ, to die as gain, amen to all that. But wouldn't you be absolutely um, just terribly discouraged if you learned that you gave the coronavirus to somebody else? That, I think, is the greater danger. We need to love our neighbor and at the present time do what our public health officials have asked us to do. God bless you. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for all the ways that you just stand beside this ministry. And uh, God bless you. We'll see you again on Monday. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.